All right, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3, it's, it's found on page 802 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at Malachi 3.13 through 4.3. 3.13 through 4.3. Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make, my, make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would use these words to change us, transform us into the image of Christ, that we would meditate upon them, that we would think deeply upon them, that it would cause us and motivate us to, to love you, to serve you, and to fear you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was reading an article this past week as I was thinking about the persecuted church that we prayed for last week. In the article, it claimed that over, over or around 900,000 Christians have been martyred in the last 10 years. As many as 90,000 Christians died for their faith on average over the last year. Okay, the article went on to say that would be like, I don't know, compared to one every six minutes, to put that in perspective. Now, I don't know exactly how accurate these figures are, right? but, but even if it's only a tenth of that, the number is still staggering, isn't it? Especially as we live here in America. E even though it's, it's something that we might not experience in the U.S., it might seem abstract and distant from us, the reality is that in some sense, we experience our own trials and difficulties and suffering today, right? Whether it's, it's financial, emotional, relational, or physical, many of you are experiencing some sort of trial or challenge or difficulty in your life. This is, this is reality, and we sometimes, we sometimes look at our own challenges, our own trials, our own injustices, 
and wonder in our hearts, is following Jesus worth it? We, we have these certain expectations of, of what the Christian life should look like and result in, in the present life, and they aren't met. And then we begin to wonder, is following Jesus really worth it? Does he pay attention? Does he pay attention to what's going on in my life? And when we have these unmet expectations, it leaves us cynical or apathetic in our relationship with God. And this is the issue that Israel was having in the days of Malachi. As, we, as we've seen throughout this book, it isn't that Israel has outright rejected God. Okay? They haven't outright rebelled in that sense or rejected him. It's that they've become cynical and indifferent to God and the things concerning God. They're just, they're just indifferent. They're, they're going through the motions of religion. They had a form of religion. And it's led to this spiritual decline of the people. And so now we arrive here this morning in this sixth and final dispute in the book. And what we see here this morning is a call to serve and fear God. A call to serve and fear God. Covenant loyalty, covenant loyalty is, is expressed not only in honoring God, in worship, but also in our marriages, in our finances, and now it's expressed in serving God in the midst of trials, difficulty, and times of hopelessness. So again, we see this same pattern in this final dispute in Malachi. There, there's a charge given, there's the question, the response, God's response, and then the application. Now, I'm going to tie these together, so we only have three points. So let's first consider the, the charge and question. So first, is it vain to serve God? Is it, is it futile is it futile to serve God? That's the question that we are, we are asking. So look with me now at verses 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So we, see, we first see here that the charge has been laid out against Israel. Their words are hard against God. Their words are harsh. They've spoken arrogantly against God. And again, they question and wonder, how? How? What have we done? How, what have we said? How have we spoken against you? You see, part of the problem with Israel, and then we've seen this throughout the book and even here again, is that they don't see it. They go on as though they haven't done anything wrong or said anything wrong. They have blind spots in their lives that they're either ignoring or choosing to ignore. And I, I would just add a word of caution here that we should be aware of blind spots in our own lives, allow others to speak into your life, examine your own heart and life. Search me, O God. Know me, try me, test me. See if there is any impure way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, in Israel's mind, 
in their words and actions, they are believing that it is futile to serve God. It's, it's vain. It's futile. It's empty. It's useless and vanity to serve God. You see, to serve God is to worship God. It's a call to a life of total obedience and commitment and devotion to God. So they're concluding it's vanity. It's useless. It's useless to commit one's life to obeying God and being loyal to him. When they look at their own circumstances in life, their trials and their difficulties, they complain and acknowledge that serving God and following him is just not worth it. You see, sometimes in the Christian life, people can be led to believe that it will be better, being a Christian will be better, easier, free us from difficulty and trials and challenges in the present. Right? If only we would follow Jesus, then guess what? Your life will be better. You won't have any trials. You won't have any difficulty. You won't have any challenges. If, if only you would follow Jesus. That, that's what we hear. I was reminded this week of what someone said in hearing people's testimonies. When Christians share their testimony, they give this impression. You know, we talk about our life before Christ, right? We talk about our life before Christ. When you give your testimony, you talk about your life before Christ. Then you talk about your life when you came to Christ. And then you talk about your life after Christ. And guess what happens in the after Christ part? It's great. It's great. Now I'm following Jesus. I'm living for the Lord. No trials, no challenges. That's not reality. That's not reality, and it's not biblical. When the gospel was proclaimed and preached in Acts, the churches were strengthened and encouraged in the faith, and they were taught this. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, most of you know it from your own life. Students, you guys realize this, that standing for Christ is difficult. It's lonely. It can be led to mistreatment, rejection by others. It leads to denying things that you want to do, that others get to do. Oh man, I'm a Christian. I can't do that now. He can that's reality. What was Israel struggling with? Notice the question that they ask. So it's vain to serve God. And then they ask this. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What gain, what, what benefit is there in obeying God's commands? What does it profit us in trying to show that we're sorry for our sins? What value is there in doing what God says or displaying emotional expressions of repentance? That, that's the question. Do you see what the motive of their heart is? Their attitude and mindset is that they're motivated by personal and material gain. They look at their own lives and they see they've gained nothing. No benefits, no prosperity. 
They look at others' lives, those around them. They see the arrogant are blessed and prospering. Unbelievers are getting rich and, and profiting in this present life. They see people testing God, and God does nothing. They see this, and they say it's pointless to serve God. It's not worth it. The arrogant are the ones that are blessed. We'd be better off completely turning away from God. That's what they're saying or thinking. For Israel, it made no sense to worship God or devote to him because they aren't gaining anything. It's a waste of time and effort to obey one's commands. Their reason for thinking this is that they're looking at their present situation and circumstance and concluding that God would not allow them to suffer. That's what they're thinking and doing. That's how they, why they come to this conclusion. You see, they, they thought that they were actually obeying God. They had a form of worship. They had a form of religion, even in their emotions. Well, see, it's about the emotions. no. Some might say it's about the emotions. They're mourning. Did them no good. The problem they think is not with them, but with God who is failing to keep up his end of the bargain. This reveals a mindset and attitude which shows that their relationship with God This is not a a covenant relationship, but a business transaction. That's what they're viewing it as. They put in the work, they do their job, they follow his charge and his commands, and it should result in earning God's blessing. Imagine working for someone, and the expectation in your mind, right? You, You do this when you work, the expectation in your mind is that you do your job, you earn a profit. Right? They're going to pay you for your work. You'll receive financial gain from your work. You've earned it. You've worked for it. But then imagine this situation that uh, they choose to not give it to you. What do you do? You just want to be done. You just want to be done with that job. Well, man, that's not what I thought this relationship was about. That's how Israel is viewing their relationship with God. They desire what they can get from God rather than God himself. Perhaps some of us find ourselves in the same situation or the same place, trying to earn God's favor. You've sought to honor the Lord because you thought it might earn you some material blessings. And right now it just doesn't seem worth it. You see no benefit in serving God committing your life to him, you're in the midst of some hardship, some trial, and it seems like God's not there. You begin to wonder, is it in vain? Has all this time trying to live for Jesus really profited me anything? If anything, you're observing the the unbelievers around you and say, they're better off. Let's guard against viewing our relationship with God as a transaction. What we think we can selfishly receive from him in the present life. Remind yourself of what Paul said in Philippians 3. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything, everything as loss. Why, Paul? Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and count them as rubbish that I might what? That I might gain Christ. Not what I might gain from Christ, but that I might actually gain him. Dying was gained for Paul. Why? Because it meant being with Jesus. That's gain. Don't serve God because of what you might think you can get from him in this present life. Don't seek to live for him in order to earn his favor or acceptance. Rather, because we are accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, the result is then that we seek to serve him and worship him and live for him. Not to earn anything. Rather than viewing life, rather than viewing your present circumstance as a reason to complain, if you're struggling with something, rather than viewing your life as some, a reason to complain and become cynical in the Christian life, let's view what's going on in our lives as opportunities to be faithful to him in the midst of it and trust in his promises. So what does he promise? This is our second point. The promise for those who serve and fear God. We're introduced to a new group. Before the Lord gives his response to the cynicism of these Israelites, we're drawn into a, a conversation with these faithful, fearful remnant. Right? They fear the Lord. We don't know exactly what they're saying, but they, they spoke with one another. So notice verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There were some who were complaining about their present situation, wondering if God was for them. There were some within Israel who were cynical, who questioned God's justice. But there were others who feared the Lord. To say that they feared the Lord meant that they had a reverence for God. They, they stood in awe of God, like Malachi 2.5, which we saw previously in this, in this book. Concerning Levi, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And then he describes their words and, and actions which honor the Lord. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending God. This group is concerned about doing what pleases the Lord. They trusted him. And when, even when things didn't go the way they thought they should. Now again, we don't exactly know what they said. It was probably the opposite of what the arrogance or what the Israelites were saying in the previous section. In God's presence, a, a scroll of remembrance was written, which recorded a list of, of those within the covenant community of those who feared the Lord and honored his name. A list was recorded of those who publicly committed themselves to the Lord. And God heard them, and God paid attention to them. Notice verses 17 through 18. He declares this, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, 
in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God's response is clear. Those who fear God and serve him belong to him. They will be his people and he will be their God. God promises on the day of the Lord when he acts in judgment, those who fear him and serve him will make up his treasured possession. Israel was promised in the old covenant in Exodus 19.5 that if they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant, then they would be his treasured possession among all peoples. Deuteronomy 7, 6, out of God's love for his people, we read this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then we arrive in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says to the church, but you are you are a, royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To be God's treasured possession is to belong to God, to be treasured, cherished, loved by God. As followers of Christ, we are already, this remnant was already God's treasured possession, and it would be evident on the last day. Christ died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2.14, the Lord treasures those who serve him, those who fear him and honor his name. The Lord promises again, on that day, he will spare them. As a man spares his son who serves him. God will have compassion on his people on the last day like a father would for his son or daughter who serves him. That's the idea. God promises that a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God, will be evident on the day of the Lord. The value and benefits of serving God is not yet clear. It's not yet fully realized. Okay, that's, that's the reality I think we need to keep in our minds. God insists that there's a coming distinction between those who fear him and those who do not. And by telling us that there is a distinction, a coming distinction on the final day, that is to shape us in the present day. That is to destroy any cynicism and complaints that they might have in their hearts toward God because things aren't going the way they think they should. We're not prospering like the unbelievers. I think it's important here to, to consider what God says and how God answers their complaints. What God promises is not a better life now. Instead, he promises on the day of the Lord, the distinction will be evident. 
If our hope is in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. This is how God answers the question. Is it vain to serve the Lord? No. We belong to God. We are his treasured possession. We will be spared on the final day. God will make a distinction of those who fear him and of those who do not. That's what we see in our final point. What, what is the outcome? So there's a promise given. What, what's the outcome on this final day? This should motivate us to serve him and fear him in the present life, knowing that it will come with trials and challenges. Okay, what, what is the outcome? So third, third point, last point. The outcome for those who serve and fear God. So look with me now at 4, 1 through 3. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither root, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the, the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now we're given the outcome of those who fear God and of those who don't. And this is to motivate the faithful to continue to honor the Lord and devote themselves to him, even though they're not prospering in the land. Israel's question, they've questioned God. God responds by promising his people will be his treasured possession He'll spare them, and now we see the application of this. The outcome of judgment for evildoers and blessing for the righteous on the day of the Lord. So Malachi ends this final dispute with this warning. The outcome of those who fail to worship God, the outcome of the arrogant and evil, is condemnation and total destruction. We, we read this several times already. The imagery is graphic. It's strong. It gives us a picture of total destruction for the ungodly. This oven has a fire that will not purify, but will consume the wicked. The stubble, the straw or chaff that remains after harvest will be burned up and quite easily. No root or branch will be left. In other words, total destruction. Completely wiped out with no hope of restoration. God's people don't see justice right now. Evildoers seem to be getting away with evil. The arrogant are prospering. And you might look around sometimes and, and, and wish you could have the material blessings or possessions of unbelievers. But God will reverse the situation for his people. The day of judgment will come and the ungodly will be wiped out. But for those who fear God, verses 2 and 3, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. On the day of the Lord, the ungodly are punished, 
and the righteous are vindicated. For those who fear God, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. Psalm 84, 11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's been observed that the imagery here of, of healing in its wings was seen in that time to depict an eagle's wings against the full sun, representing the guardianship and blessing of the deity for the rulers or the people. And it was overshadowed by protecting wings of the gods, the protective wings of the gods. And this pictures Jesus as the son of righteousness in which a new day dawns as the rising sun bringing healing and protection for his people. The heat from the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ will bring warmth to the body. It will bring healing to the body and soul of those who worship him. It will bring wholeness and peace Every wrong will be made right. Every crime will receive its just penalty. It will bring healing to you. If you're trusting in Jesus' morning, it will bring healing to you. Every hurt, every pain, every suffering, every injustice, every sadness healed. Because the Son of Righteousness is here. The God of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, is here. Here, Jesus is coming again. On that final day, he will return and dwell with his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Malachi concludes this section, the end of verse 2 and 3, with another picture of the outcome of those who fear God. Did you notice the, the imagery here? They will go out leaping like calves from the stall, and he will tread down the wicked under their feet. Like calves, right? I have a mental picture in my mind of what this looks like. You guys would know what this looks like. Like calves, there's great delight, inexpressible joy because of their freedom. They're let loose, they're let go and out. And, and here they are trampling down the, the wicked. It reminds us again of the reversal that's taken place. They're filled with joy. They're filled with delight, freedom, victory. This is a victory march. The Lord is the victor for his people. When the Lord returns, there is no doubt. No doubt. When Jesus returns, no doubt that it was worth it to serve him in this present life. When the Lord returns, there is no doubt that the righteous will triumph in the end. No doubt about it. So, said a lot. I've said it fast. What are some lessons that we learn from this? Okay, four lessons. Four lessons that we learn from this. Number one, this text should reassure us and motivate us to live for Jesus in the present life. Right? You read this, is it vain to serve God? No. Live for him in the present life, and it should motivate you to plead with people to repent, right? And to not say in their hearts it's vain to serve God. 
Number two, join together and encourage other believers to serve him and fear him. Right? Join together. Right? This group that feared God, they didn't do it alone. In the midst of the challenges that they were facing, of those who feared God, right, they didn't go through it alone. They had each other. They spoke with one another. Let, let's not gloss over the significance of this right, for our church. Uniting together in the midst of hardships as we seek to continue to honor the Lord. Right? I'm thankful that, that, that we do that. Let's continue to do that. Let's continue to come alongside each other, help each other, join together in carrying one another's burdens and not walking in the Christian life alone, knowing that it comes with trials, challenges, difficulty. Number three, don't be jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. Don't be jealous of the prosperity of the, of the wicked in this present life. Sometimes it's easy to focus our attention on what others have and of what we don't have. And it can lead to jealousy. It can lead to complaining or bitterness or cynicism toward God or indifference to living for God or even outright rebellion against God. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus and what will be ours in the new heaven and new earth, him, we can endure. And number four, therefore, right? Remembering that he's coming back, our time will be inexpressible joy, filled with glory and beauty and healing at his return. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him today. Not as a business transaction, but as a son would for their loving father. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Completely commit to him. Set your hope on the return of Christ and surrender all to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we even now acknowledge times in our own hearts, times in our own lives, and we, we think, is it really worth it? Are we really better off? Why are evildoers getting away with the things they're doing? And, and why are they prospering? Why is the Christian life so hard? Why does it come with struggles and loneliness and trials and challenges? And we recognize and remember that Jesus went through the same things. We remember that first of all. That the pathway to glory was through a cross was through suffering. So I pray that you would, you would help us remember that, that we would, we would look to you, we would look to Jesus, fixing our hope on him, fixing our confidence on your promises, that we are your treasured possession, and it will be evident on the last day. Would you help us turn from our cynicism and complaining and help us live for Jesus and serve him in the present time, knowing that he is coming back. So we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.